In this episode of Real Christianity, I finish up the last section of Romans chapter 2, offer a clear presentation of the gospel, and we discuss why you cannot be saved without a changed heart. All that and more coming up right now. Welcome to Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge. Today's episode is titled Romans 2, 25 through 29, Why Salvation Requires a Changed Heart. Now, as you know, this show is an audio and video ministry of relearn.org. So if you're watching the video recording of this episode, please be sure to subscribe or follow along for more biblical content. If you're listening from Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, Thank you for your faithful listenership. You can also follow our ministry on just about every social media platform if you don't already, and we'd love to have you on the journey. Now, I have a big announcement. This is something new. We just launched my newest book, which is my first children's book, Jesus and My Gender. It has become very clear that if you do not intentionally teach your kids a biblical view of gender, the world will teach them otherwise. So in this book, we have incredible illustrations, strong theology, and it rhymes And uh, to throw in a little bit more, I created a five-question catechism on biblical gender that your kids can memorize. So we need at least 1,500 people to pre-order this book before we send it to print. So will you consider grabbing a copy of Jesus and My Gender? It'll be ready to ship out on the first week of November, so you will have these for Christmas. You can learn more, see a bunch of pictures, get a real grasp of kind of the rhymes of the book if you just go to relearn.org forward slash gender. Again, that's relearn.org forward slash gender. All right, guys, we are going to dive into this episode. For the past several weeks, we've looked at Paul's primary objective of Romans chapter two, which has really taught us that from the very beginning, he's he's basically teaching the Jews that their religious actions and activity are not sufficient for justification. So he's trying to strip them down so that they turn away from their religious practices and turn to Christ. From Romans 2, verse 12 to 229, we see him really confront, expose, and reveal the condemnation and hypocrisy of the Jews. This is really his focus. He wants to show the religious elite, similar to Jesus, that their works were not sufficient to justify them. They will not be justified by works of the law. Now, you have to remember that the Jews found redemptive hope in three primary things. I want you guys to pay attention here. Number one is who they were. And who they were was the children of Abraham. That is a pride for the Jewish people, is that they were the children of Abraham. God's chosen holy people entered into an Abrahamic covenant with God. And so this is number one, is that they were a chosen people, who they were. Number two is what they had. They had God's moral law. No other nation had God's moral law. It was delivered to them on Mount Sinai from Moses on two tablets of stone. We know them as the Ten Commandments. This is essential mark of identity for the Jews. The third thing is how they were marked. They were marked with a sign of a covenant we know as circumcision, and this is the sign of the old covenant between God and Abraham and his covenant people here. So the three things that they had redemptive hope was who they were, what they had, and how they were marked. And so that's essential that we understand the cultural, national, ethnic context that Paul is speaking to the Jews so that they would understand this. 
Paul's objective in chapter two, as I said just a minute ago, is really to strip away any redemptive hope that they have. It's to help them see that their ethnic heritage, their law keeping, and in today's sermon, really this covenantal mark that they have is not sufficient to make them righteous before God, but there is something else that they need, which obviously is the righteousness of Christ. So the Jews needed to see that they weren't righteous, that they were unrighteous, that they were sinners. They needed to understand that if a person doesn't keep the entire law, not just externally, but also internally. And so this is why Jesus constantly through his ministry would say things like, you've heard that it was said this, and he's referencing back to the law. But I'm saying that it's actually much deeper than that. You've heard that it was said that if you commit adultery with a woman, that this is wrong. I'm saying that if you even lust after a woman, you're committing adultery. So he's basically heightening the responsibility and showing that no man or woman is going to be free from keeping or from breaking the law. All of us have broken the law at the heart level. While we may have not committed adultery, all of us have committed lust. And so Jesus is showing that the law doesn't just have jurisdiction on our actions, but also on our thoughts, our intentions, and our heart, which is, again, making everything, just the stakes go way higher. And we need to recognize, wow, I'm actually unable to keep the law. This is why the disciples would often say things like, who can be saved then? You know, if if my righteousness needs to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees, who, who can be saved? Because these people dedicate their entire lives to this. And Jesus is saying, hey, even these people aren't going to be saved. They, you need to have a righteousness that exceeds these people. And so this is kind of the, the cultural theological context of what's going on here. We looked at James chapter 2, verse 10 that says, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of all of it. So if you were born and you kept the entire law, which you couldn't, but you kept the entire law until you were 85 years old and you broke the law one time, None of your obedience matters at this point because you have now become unrighteous and are sent out of God's presence. I think about Adam and Eve, who were completely holy and righteous, standing before God without sin. And one sin, one sin of disobeying God, eating of the forbidden fruit, and God sends them away. One sin was enough to plunge humanity completely into judgment and deserving of hell. And so Romans 3.20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified. This is core because we have to understand that Paul is making a point here from Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way to Romans chapter 3, verse 20. And it really ends with the culmination of this verse in Romans 3, 20 that says, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified. And so I'm going to read a couple other verses that I think will give us some other theological context so that we can understand the law. My my hope for you, people, is that you would understand the purpose of the law in salvation, the purpose of the law in the gospel, uh, why Jesus would say statements like, I didn't come here to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Jesus didn't just die for us, but he also lived for us. He lived perfectly fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law 
so that he can impute his righteousness to us through faith. Now, we need to understand that the law has not been abolished, but it's actually still here bringing condemnation to those individuals who are not keeping the law. It is the justification of the, for the judgment that is coming that they've broken the law. So th- this is, again, some of that context that you need to grasp so that when you preach the gospel and you share the gospel, you leverage the law because the gospel is a healing ointment to the wounds that are afflicted by the law. You must start with law and then move to gospel. That's essential for people to understand. This is why Paul does this throughout the Romans road. If you've ever heard of the Romans road, it's basically a presentation of the gospel through the book of Romans. And so he starts with the condemning power of the law. So I'm going to read a couple more verses, Galatians 3, 10 through 14. It says, for all who rely on works of the law, are under a curse. And so again, that word curse, you have to think about that for a second because this is covenantal language, blessings and cursings. I'm going to keep reading. It says, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So you have to actually abide by all these things and then in additionally, you actually have to do them. And when it says do the law, it means completely, perfectly. There is no human being or no soul in heaven who is not perfect. That's the only way to be in the presence of God is to be completely perfect. This is why God would say, uh, be holy as I am holy. You need to be completely holy. The only way that you can be completely holy is if you have been completely forgiven and have the righteousness of Christ completely imputed to you so that you are as righteous as Christ is righteous and you are as clean or as forgiven and pure as Christ is pure. And so this is, again, hoping you get some biblical theological context here to understand the importance of law. I'm still reading Galatians 3, 10 through 14, and Trevor, who does these slides, is going to be absolutely frustrated because we keep going back and forth. So we're going back here. In verse 11, it says, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, that that line right there, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. So anybody that's trying to earn their salvation by obedience or by law keeping, it's right there. No one is going to be justified by God by the law, by works of the law. The righteous, those people who have the righteous verdict on judgment day shall live, that means to not die eternally or be eternally punished, but to live eternally shall live by what? By faith, by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the central point that Paul is laboring to make in chapter two and preparing to make in chapter three. Your obedience, your law following, your religious activity, your giving, your church attendance, your Bible reading schedule, your your prayer schedule does not make you saved and does not contribute to your righteous standing, to your saving, to your maintaining of your salvation, none of it. Now, yes, you can work and obey from the place that you are saved with a desire and motive to please God. That, that's okay. But if you're working to actually make yourself righteous as if you disobey, you'll lose your salvation, that's, that's wrong. And so the only thing that saves and keeps a person saved is faith in Christ alone. We've heard, you know, say by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. That is our banner that we must fly. So I labor this point week after week after week 
because we have millions of Christians around the world who have a faith plus works gospel. If you believe that you can lose your salvation, you will always work to keep it. You will always work to keep up your faith. And again, you're automatically performing. Uh, You're trying to keep up with, make sure that God stays pleased with you. And so too many people have this, Jesus did his part. Now I'll do mine. And that is so common. I actually had a gentleman in our church recently come up to me and say, hey, Dale, I know you kind of over and over and over again hit the gospel. And I sometimes even think that I do this too much. I don't even know if that's even a thing to preach the gospel too much, but I'm over and over again talking about the mechanics of the gospel. But he said, hey, it's really allowed this doctrine to sink into my mind, hearing it repeatedly and allowed him to faithfully present the gospel to somebody he ran into in his everyday life. So I hope that's true of you, that you're going to hear the mechanics of the gospel on this podcast over and over again, and it equips you to faithfully present the gospel when the Lord gives you those moments. So, okay, going back in here, um, we have this element in the gospel presentation or understanding of the gospel that we underestimate the power of the law and we overestimate our ability to keep it. We do this even in religion. I mean, if you ask any Mormon, you ask any Roman Catholic, you ask any Jehovah's Witness, you ask any even Seventh-day Adventist, there, there is so much of this there. Also the Church of Christ, which we often talk about here. There are so many of these denominations or religions or different things that are going on that even fall into this category. And so we need to remember that God's standard of righteousness is absolutely perfect. I, I think about Isaiah 64, 6, where God says, and all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. And you go, well, how can a righteous deed be filthy to God? Because if it's not done in faith, if it's not done to the glory of Christ, it is, this is why anybody who's a sinner, someone who's not saved, if they do any sort of righteous work to God, it's filthy because it's not done to the glory of Christ. If we do some sort of act that's self-righteous and not done to the glory of Christ, even as a believer, God is not pleased with those things. Now, we are it doesn't mean that we're not saved because our justification doesn't rest on our obedience, but the obedience of Christ. But it's important that you understand that anybody that's not saved, even if they're doing things like the Jews were doing, they're keeping the law, they're obeying the law. God's trying to make it clear that your obedience, because you're a sinner and because you're not redeemed, because you're not trusting in Christ alone, it's actually filthy. It's it's not righteous because it's done to self-righteousness instead of the righteousness of God. And so we cannot view our works as contributing to or maintaining our salvation. That's what I want to make sure we get ultra clear as a guy who came out of a group of Christians years ago that absolutely believed that we can contribute to our salvation by maintaining our good works and obedience. So this is a very real thing in the church if you haven't experienced it. Have you guys heard, I'm not gonna even ask, have you guys heard, have you guys recently sung the song, Jesus Paid It All? It's just an important hymn for us to remember the lyrics. I'll talk about that at the end of this episode. To believe, again, that you can somehow contribute to your righteousness and justification, it's pride. It's a prideful position. Anyone who believes this, we're just blind to the wretchedness of our own sin. I actually met a gentleman recently, and he was he came to our church, and he was from uh, a different religious group. 
And I asked him about sin and he says, I actually don't, I, I don't think that I sin that often. And he didn't understand the concept of needing the righteousness of Christ and, and that he did his part. And, and I said, well, do you think you sin today? And he says, no, I, I don't think that I've sinned today. And so there's self-love is blinding. And so we have to recognize that we should be sitting before the throne of grace in prayer going, I can't believe how much of a sinner I am. Like when you really look at your own heart, just drive in traffic for a bit and just look at your own thoughts. Um, deal with a toddler for five minutes and then look at your own thoughts. You, you just quickly realize how sinful you are and how much you need Christ all the time. And so, again, at this point, you quickly begin to see this need for a savior, need to be forgiven, need to be justified and brought back into the presence of God. We know that that's what the gospel is doing, right? So God is in the presence of his people, Adam and Eve. They sin, their sin separates themselves from a holy God. And there is now a need for a bridge to reconcile humanity back to God. That's the whole purpose of the gospel is that Jesus becomes that bridge to reconcile his people, the fallen people of Adam. So we are born of Adam, but we need to be born again of Christ so that we can be reconciled to God. This is coming to the Lord's table. Again, I'm hoping you're starting to get some bells ring that you understand the gospel here. And so every one of us needs two things. And again, I'm talking about the gospel, then I'm going to get back into the exposition of Romans chapter two. The two things that we need is number one, someone needs to die for our sin. But not just anyone, someone who doesn't have sin of their own, and it needs to be a blood sacrifice that's attributed to our debt because the wages of sin is death. Somebody needs to die for your sin. And number two, we need to be made righteous. So even though Christ paid the fine, our debt was actually attributed to Christ and we're forgiven of our debt. We still did the crime. So we're still unrighteous and need to be made righteous. So we don't just need the forgiveness. We don't just need our sin imputed to Christ. We also need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. And that's called double imputation. Uh, It's an important theological concept. So we need to be made righteous. So this is the gospel. That's really the core of the gospel. The good news that Jesus accomplishes both for us. He does all the work. We don't need to be working. We can rest in that reality. He died for the sins of his people, and he's given us his righteousness by faith. This is the gospel. This is 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That word righteousness, it's almost like the righteousness from God. We get that righteousness of Christ that's given to us from God. Romans 4.25 says, who was delivered up for, talking about Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses, died that's the death part, and raised for our justification, lived. So Jesus died for us, uh, but he also lived for us, right? So he's, he's accomplished both in which we don't have to die and he's lived the life that we couldn't live. And so this is where Paul's going. And I wanted to give you guys that gospel background, but this is where Paul's going because he needs the Jews to see that they're clinging to the religious activity, to who they are, what they have, and how they've been marked, they're clinging to those things and he's trying to strip them from those things and showing that none of those things will produce forgiveness, righteousness, and justification. And those are the things that they need. And so he wants them to essentially turn, right? He wants them to repent, turn from their their self-righteousness and turn to the cross. And so uh, Romans 2, 1 through 16, Paul teaches, it's not who you are that makes you righteous, 
God's impartial. And it says there's going to be more people than the Jews. And so this is the whole focus of the, the first part of Romans chapter two. It's not who you are that makes you righteous. Romans 2, 17 to 24, it's it's not what you have that makes you righteous. It's not the possession of the law that makes you redeemed. So it's not even who you are. It's not what you have. And then now we're going to go in today to talk about, it's not how you've been marked that makes you righteous. Physical circumcision does not produce justification. Now, Paul is, again, systematically, step-by-step, because he's a Jew, and he understands how they are relying upon these things so heavily, and he's trying to uh, to, to rip away all these rocks and boulders and, and get down to the heart and the root of all this thing and going, these things you are relying on, and they will not make you justified. In fact, they are the very things that are sending you to hell. And so Romans 2, 25 through 29 is our text. I'm going to read that right now. I'm going to be reading in the ESV. Here we go. For circumcision indeed is a value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Okay, guys, this is a jugular attack from Paul to the Jewish people. Circumcision was the golden calf of the Jews' redemptive hope in the religious activity. They place so much hope in this religious mark. It was a sign of their inclusion in the Abrahamic covenant. It was God's way of marking his people and making them holy. The word holy we know is to be set apart. And so this is another way to set them apart. The Jews had all types of ways to be set apart. They ate differently. They they lived differently. They had different laws. They had different ways of dressing. They had different rules and laws in the way that they behaved with one another. They had all these different things, the physical marks like this, that were constantly setting them apart as a holy nation. And again, holy doesn't necessarily mean righteous. It just means set apart. It can be righteous in that way too. So this was a practice that dates back even before Moses. So this is something that was really the root of roots. It's before Moses and the Mosaic covenant. It's the thing that distinguished them as God's people. So there was such a heavy reliance upon circumcision. So it was the sign of covenant between God and Israel. And so Paul dismantling circumcision and its importance for salvation is a radical shift for the Jews to acknowledge. And you have to understand that because we have to bring you into the world of the Bible and the historical cultural context for you to understand how provocative this statement might actually be to a Jewish culture. So verse 25, I'm going to read it again. We'll go verse by verse here. It says, for circumcision indeed is a value if, contingency clause right there, right? If you obey the law, but contrast clause, If you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So first, Paul wants to be clear that circumcision is valuable to those who keep the law perfectly in the heart and on the outside physically, and which nobody can. But if you don't 
keep the law perfectly. It has no redemptive status or ability in and of itself. And so he wants them to see that circumcision doesn't justify a person, but it was intended to be a mark on God's people of the covenant promise between God and Abraham that, pay attention here, that a justifier will come through Abraham. And that's really what this is about, is that the mark itself doesn't justify an individual, but it is a promise of the people by which the justifier will come. And that justifier is Jesus Christ. And so you go to verse 26 and it says, so if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? So Paul isn't saying that a Gentile can keep the law. We have to remember we don't have this schizophrenic Paul who says one thing over here and another thing somewhere else. That's what happens when people cherry pick scriptures and they don't understand how to read the Bible in context. We know that chapter one, verses 18 through three, verses 20, he's making a point and he's getting somewhere and he's using all types of literary devices to do so. And so we know in verse chapter uh, three, verses 20, that nobody will be justified by works of the law. No, Paul is using a hypothetical statement here about the Gentiles uh, to make a point to a people the Jews, who genuinely think that humans can keep the law. Now, he's making a point that you can't keep the law. And so he's demonstrating that circumcision isn't the act that justifies a person. He hasn't got there quite yet to what the act is at this point in Romans, but he's saying that this isn't it. Circumcision isn't it. He's saying that uncircumcised people can have the benefits of the circumcised, again, which again frustrates the Jews because they have viewed themselves as such a holy people, and they're learning that circumcision does not redeem. And so he moves on to verse 27, and he's going to kind of culminate here later in just a couple more verses. Verse 27 says, then he who is physically uncircumcised, but keeps the law will condemn you, that is the Jews, who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. So again, Paul takes that dagger that's on the jugular, and he pulls it out of their neck and then thrusts it right into their heart. And he's basically saying that the Jew, that circumcision actually becomes the ground for greater judgment because now you are the covenant people who are supposed to understand these things yet don't. And so it really highlights this massive amount of hypocrisy in their inability to keep the law when in reality they think they keep the law, but they're not justified by works of the law or by works of circumcision. So circumcision becomes the evidence of their hypocrisy. And so again, Paul is just going right at it. And again, if you understood and can feel and sense the Jewish culture, these statements are big, big statements. It's hard to get across to an American 21st century culture. And so Paul goes to the central point in verse 28. He says, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Okay, this is like a mind-blowing conversation to a Jew. Verse 29, but a Jew is one inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter, which is just a synonym for the law, not by the law. And it closes with his praise is not from man, that's the law, but from God, that's really talking about regeneration of the heart. And so this is not simply Paul making a new point either. This is a point that has been made Throughout the Old Testament, I'm going to read one verse in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6. 
It says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Now, it's not talking about live physically. It's talking about that you will live eternally, spiritually, that you won't have to experience the second death, the death after physical death, the death that's talked about in Revelation. And the second death is a separation, not just from the soul and the body, which is the first death, but the separation from the soul from God eternally, which is the second death. And he's saying that God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that, that's a purpose clause, right? That you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live, that you may live eternally. And so whenever you see those moments in scripture that says that you may live, it's not talking about living generally. It's not talking about living physically. It's talking about spiritually living, being spiritually alive. You think about passages like Ephesians chapter two, it says you were dead in the trespasses and sins, but God in verse four made you alive, right? This, this concept of death and life. When, when Adam and Eve sinned, they died spiritually that day. And everybody that was born of Adam is born spiritually dead. And that's why they need to be not just born physically, but born again spiritually. So again, I'm hoping you're starting to see some of this gospel mechanics here. So Paul wants the Jews to know that when he stands before the judgment seat of God, his outward circumcision's not going to save him. Paul's making that point clear. They need a new heart. They need a new heart. He needs a mark of holiness, not on his outward flesh, but he needs a new regenerated heart. He needs spiritual life. He needs his heart to be born again, a mark that can only come by the regeneration of the spirit and by faith in the Messiah promised to come through the line of Abraham, which is really the whole purpose of covenantal agreement because of the promise that's coming down. Because we know, again, Genesis chapter three, that there is a promise. It's called the protoevangelium. It's the idea that there is already the first gospel pronounced in Genesis chapter three, that there will be a serpent crusher that comes through the line of the woman. And that line of the woman is really carried throughout these covenants preserved in Noah, promised through the line of Abraham, then through uh, David clarified to the specific line of Judah and pronounced by John the Baptist and born entering into the new covenant. And so this is the whole gospel. It's this promise of a justifier of someone who will come and send the spirit who will regenerate individuals' uh, hearts and give them new life. And so lots of beautiful, deep, content here that we need to understand if we can preach faithfully the gospel of Jesus Christ. The whole purpose of the second chapter of Romans is to demonstrate to the Jews that they are equally condemned before God as the Gentiles, because God shows no partiality. If you're not righteous, it doesn't matter if you have a covenant mark or if you have God's law, or if you're born of the seed of Abraham, none of that stuff matters. You need to have a new heart. You need to be born again. I wish I had the verse up in front of me right now, but Jesus says, if you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. It's John chapter three. And so they need to stop leaning on who they are, what they have and how they're marked and start repenting and trusting and leaning only on Christ alone. And so the lesson is not just for the Jews, but it's also for us in this modern era. If any one of us believe that our outward works and our obedience contributes at all, 
to making us saved, to making us righteous before God, we don't understand the gospel. We don't understand the gospel of grace. We don't understand that there is no work to be done. You have to get that the law is due, but the gospel is done. If you add anything to the gospel other than repent and believe, anything to maintain salvation, then you have created a non-biblical gospel. So yes, we must obey, we must work, but we work to please the Lord, not to maintain our salvation. And so our salvation rests in the obedience and perfect righteousness of Christ. So this is why Jesus would say things like Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 and 30. He would say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So this is a statement to the religious person that is working and laboring to maintain their favor with God. And he's saying, come rest in me, come rest in Christ. To the individual that believes that if they don't obey, that God will be angry with them and push them away and that they will no longer be saved. Jesus is saying, stop, come rest in in the righteousness of Christ. This is the good news that the gospel is done, that we can come and rest in Christ. I think a lot of people struggle to just receive the fullness of the gospel because we want to somehow contribute, but the reality is we can't. And that's what makes it so wonderful is that the gospel is completely done by Christ alone. And so we don't work to be saved. We work from being saved. And that's the reason. So, you know, you've heard the famous phrase, obedience is a fruit of salvation, but it's not the root of salvation. So the fourth stanza of Jesus paid it all. I'm going to read it to you. It says, and now complete in him, my robe, his righteousness. I'll rejoice with all my might. I am now divinely blessed. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. So guys, I hope this was helpful for you guys to understand Romans chapter two. We're going to dive into Romans chapter three in the next episode. And we're getting closer to some of the just beautiful parts of this gospel narrative of Romans. And so just stay tuned, stay with us on this journey through Romans. If you're new here, make sure you go all the way back and to listen to all these episodes through Romans. It's such a wonderful presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have not left a review of this show, would you do so? Would you give a thumbs up if you're watching the video? Would you go to the podcast app that you listen to the show and leave a review? You don't even need to write something, but if you do, I do read those reviews. So thank you guys so much for those of you who have left those reviews. They're very helpful for us. They're encouraging to us. They also offer an extension in the algorithm. More people can find our show when there's more comments, when there's more likes, when there's more reviews. So those things really do help in a very small way, but they do absolutely help support our ministry. On that note, thank you guys for listening to this episode of Real Christianity. My name is Dale Partridge, and I'll see you next time. 
If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. Also, would you consider leaving a review? You don't need to write anything. Just tap the stars in your podcast app. But if you would write a review, we will read it. Real Christianity is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, Google Play, and of course, at relearn.org. You can also follow along on social media. Just search for relearn.org or Dale Partridge on just about every social media platform. Lastly, if you feel led to support our ministry financially as we fight to bring the church back to the Bible, you can always do that at relearn.org forward slash donate. Donate.